uh, John 4, 39 uh, to 54. Uh, many Samaritans believe. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to, say with the, to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Jesus heals the official son. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Now, there's someone in our home that's been paying a lot of attention to the highway code recently. Not only in the modern world do you have to be attentive to the skills of driving a car on the narrow roads of Epsom and Yule and Stoneley into the ends of the earth. Not only do you have to be skilled at hazard perception and hazard, hazard awareness, I can't even say the word, uh, as you click frantically on the screen, you have to be very attentive to signposts. You have to be attentive to the round ones with red around the outside, with white in the middle, with a deer and, and with uh, bridges and ducks crossing. That's just if you go around Bourne Hall. But um, you have to be attentive to signs. You have to be attentive to the round ones, to the ones with blue backgrounds, to the black and white chevrons, to the red triangles and so on. Now, John is not interested in the highway code. He's very interested in signs. Here's a, here's a slide you've seen before. People disagree and chop it up in different ways. But there are seven signs in the gospel of John that John wants us to be very attentive to. Now, signposts point to something. They warn of danger. They warn of hazards. They tell you this is the speed you should be going. This is the speed you are going if it's an electric one that can measure you. But John says this. These signs at the end of the gospel that I've shown you about the person of Jesus, I've shown you the person of Jesus so that you would be attentive to him, to his character, to his nature, to his power. Why? Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Why? But these are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There are two themes in that sentence. Belief, faith, and also life. That you may have life in his name. Faith is a really general word. It's it's general and then the Bible gets quite specific about saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. There's not two sorts of people in the world. There's not people who have faith and people who don't. Everybody has faith. It's just a question of in whom or in what your faith rests. In whom or what is your faith rest. It's not as if religious people over here from different tribes and tongues and nations, they have faith in irreligious, non-religious people, people with no religious affiliation. They do not have faith. That's not true according to the Bible. Everybody has faith. It's just in what or whom you place your faith. Now, I've got five points. Right, I said five. So let's get to it. We've not got three. We've got five. Let's break some rules. We're going to look at where does faith begin? How does faith mature? How does it grow as well? Number one, life-giving faith starts with reason. Life-giving faith starts with reason. It starts in the mind. It starts with thinking. Where do we get that from in John chapter 4? What do I mean? Look at sentence 46 and 47. We meet a man. We're introduced to this man who is of noble royalty, a person of royal power, a person of standing and status. Someone, everybody would know his name and his status in the royal family. And he comes with this great need. He has heartache in his personal world. His son is ill. As the sentences develop, we realize he's about to die. He's that desperate for help that he begs. Did you notice that? When he hears of Jesus, he begs Jesus to come. Think how condescending that was. Here's a person who would tell people to do stuff, and it's done with immediacy. And yet he's a person who begs Jesus to come and help and heal his son. Now, why would he do that when he had lots of earthly trappings of status and royalty and power? Why? Because he had heard reports, verse 47. Now, Jesus has been on a road trip again, verse 45. We know he's come back to Galilee. He's been in Jerusalem. And he's done many deeds. He's done mighty deeds, many public miracles. So that we can read from sentence 45 that the people in Jerusalem had seen something of the authentic power of God in the person of Jesus. They'd seen something that Jesus had done and the word was beginning to spread like wildfire. How do we know that? Because he had heard the reports, this royal person. He'd heard reports and he had weighed the reports that he heard and he believed the reports. And because he believes the reports, he takes a 25-mile journey from where he lived to beg the person, Jesus Christ, this illiterate carpenter who he heard reports about. And he waited up in his spirit, in his mind, and he says, I'm going to trust those reports. I'm going to believe the reports I've heard in my inner ear, and I'm going to journey 25 miles. 23, 25 miles, something like that, over dodgy terrain, through the dusty countryside, because this man has heard reports, and he wants to go and see the person that the reports are about. Now, we believe things for a host of different reasons. Historians tell us stuff, and we believe what they have said. 
This thing happened at battle. This thing happened at Hastings. This thing happened, this bloody thing happened at the Tower of London. We're going to go and check it out. We believe what historians have said. We believe scientists. We believe that we have a heart inside of us. I've never seen my heart, but I trust it's working. We are amazed at how the inner ear works with those three little bones, the smallest bones in the human body, I believe. We're amazed at sight. We're amazed at smell and touch and taste because scientists tell us you read books, you have teachers, and you trust them. But they're not first-hand reports. Very few of them are. And here we have a royal person who has sifted, who has heard evidence, and has decided to believe that Jesus has power to heal his son. This man must have heard reports. They weren't second, third-hand. He must have heard from people who saw it first-hand that Jesus has the power to do miracles because that's where faith begins. Your mind is not left at the door if you become a Christian this morning. Faith begins in the mind. It begins with reason, but it can't stay there. Faith goes from belief and it has to move to trust. It moves to trust, which is the second point. Life-giving faith has to move beyond belief to trust Jesus responds with an answer to the father's heart-wrenching request. He's desperate, throws himself in the dust probably, and Jesus responds with an answer that is ambiguous at best. Did you notice? And it's not the first time Jesus has done this. I think Chris pointed this out very clearly last week. Remember in John 2, Mary in Galilee at Cana, remember? Jesus has done an about turn and has come back to Cana in Galilee. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, says they've run out of wine. And Jesus no longer treats Mary as a mother but as a worshipper. He says, woman, woman, what are you bothering me for? And then says, it's not my hour to die yet. And Mary says, come again. I asked you about wine. And Jesus, remember, was teaching us about the hour of his death for the sins of the world. Sometimes people come to Jesus with perfectly natural requests, and Jesus kind of puts them off. If he was a rugby player, he kind of gave them a handoff. He says, no, we're not going to go there. We're going to go here. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this. And the question is, why does Jesus operate like that? Jesus operates like that out of love. It's always out of love. The reason Jesus does stuff is always out of love. Here's the point. Jesus does not just want to heal the son physically. He wants to heal the whole family spiritually. And the only way the father and the whole family will be healed spiritually is if Jesus deals with the needs of their heart, which is their sin to be paid for. He wants their souls to be healed as well as the boy's body. It's not just a question of magic or performance. He's trying to draw the man out. Look how he challenges him. The first time he puts him off, verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders. In other words, you're after the supernatural, says Jesus. You're not after me. The father comes back again. He's not put off. So he comes back a second time very courteously, very persistently. Verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus says, verse 50, you may go. Your son will live. Now, when we see this, we know a lot more than the man knows. We know who Jesus is, most of us. That sounds like a great response. 
Jesus says, your son will live. That's a great response. Actually, I think it's a terrible test. It's a test of the man's repose of his heart. Will he move from belief in the reported speech, what he's heard about the person of Jesus? Will he move from belief to life-giving trust? That's what's going on here. That's why Jesus gives him a handoff, and that's why the man's heart is engaged with the second response, the second question. When he says, please go with me, the father is saying, I need you. Please come with me. It's a terrible test, to put it another way. Now think about the backstory here. Whenever miracles are done in the Old Testament, predominantly through the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, they always have to be there. They had to say things. They had to do stuff. They have to say, here's my staff, and I'm going to touch you with it. And through the staff, the power of God comes, and a miraculous event occurs. They have to lay literally on the body of a dead boy so that he's resurrected. They have to be there. But here's Jesus, verse 50, the central verse, I think, of this passage. There's an astounding claim that Jesus is making. He's saying, I'm not going to go with you because I can heal with a word. I don't need to be with you, but at my command, at my word, my word has power to heal. I want you to trust me. I'm not going with you because I can heal with a word. Verse 46, notice Jesus was in Galilee. The man's son was in Capernaum, 25-mile journey. We've said that already. That's an awfully long walk. It's an awfully long walk if your heart is breaking over your son. If we were to say, I want to build a house. I want to build a house on some brown land around Epsom because there's a housing shortage, perhaps. We could say, let there be a house, but that wouldn't be any good. We'd have to get our hands dirty. We'd have to pay for an architect. We'd have to pay for someone to come and help us build what we wanted. But that's not the case with God. God's word is the same as his deed. When God says something like, let there be light, there's no time lapse. When God speaks, his deed is as good as done. His word and his deed are the same thing. His word has power and it has authority. And so here is the creator God walking the earth. And the royal official says, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, I don't need to go. My word has authority and power because of who I am. I'm the creator God. You never see Jesus when he heals someone perspiring. You never hear, see Jesus thinking, I need to exercise someone who's been under awful demonic possession. I just need to roll up my sleeves. This is going to be hard work. I'm not sure if I've got it in me today. That never happens to Jesus because of who he is. He's the mighty, majestic creator God. He's not powerless. He's the definition of power. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And so the wind and the waves recognize the voice of the creator. He says a word, and the boy can be healed. My dear friend, I'm not going to go with you. Jesus could have said, I'm far greater than your understanding of who I am, verse 50. You can just go and trust me that your son will be healed because I've said so. Now that took guts didn't it? It took guts from this royal official. He heard reports. 
He believed the reports. He went to Jesus as his only hope. And then Jesus speaks to him, turns him on his heels. What do you think? I mean, how it was more than 25 miles journey back, was it not? Imagine what the father is thinking. If Jesus is wrong, I'm done. My son will die. But he trusts his son's life to this incredible claim for the incredible person, Jesus Christ. And he goes. This is the key verse, verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And this is just the beginning. He's moving this man, Jesus, from intellectual, rational belief to power and personal trust and dependence on himself. He's not seeing Jesus as a miracle worker. You people want signs and wonders. He sees Jesus as the Messiah. He's not just believing about Jesus. He's now believing in Jesus through this dialogue. It's the difference between life-giving faith and just mental assent in the concept of Jesus. Now, there's a story with some pictures on the screen of uh, someone that, called Charles Blondin, a French tightrope walker. People in Christian ministry have used this illustration for centuries, so I thought I'd use it again. Uh, in case you've never heard it before, he was a 19th century French uh, tightrope uh, artist and walker, and he would walk easily across Niagara Falls over a rope that's suspended between two points. Absolutely crazy. This is some of the things he did. He walked by himself with a blindfold on across Niagara Falls, listening to the power of the waves. Somehow, I don't know why he agreed to it, he got his manager on his shoulders and then walked across the tightrope. He uh, put a massive weight of about 90 kilograms in the wheelbarrow and wheeled it across Niagara Falls on the tightrope. Um, he got a small cooking table out in the middle of Niagara Falls on the tightrope, must have narrow legs, and he cooked himself an omelette. Um, and then, <laughs> the most favorite one of all was when he took a table with four legs and uh, put it on one corner, one leg, and balanced on top of the table, on top of the rope that's suspended across Niagara Falls. One time, Blondin gets to the other side, having done an amazing feat, and says to the crowd that were there these words, Do you believe that I can take a human being across safely and successfully in this wheelbarrow? Of course you can. Are you really sure? Absolutely. Do you want to get in the wheelbarrow? He does. No one was willing to go from belief to trust. Nobody wanted to get in the wheelbarrow. You've just seen me do it. Yeah, but I don't want to do it. My mother-in-law can go. That's not being a Christian. A Christian is someone who gets in the wheelbarrow. A Christian is someone who believes and then who trusts with their heart's repose. Not on their own resources, but on the person of Jesus Christ. A nominal Christian is someone who believes the Bible, who reads the Bible, who goes to church, but they are not trusting their life to the person, Jesus Christ. These miracles, these signs have been recorded that you might believe and have eternal life in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? You rest your life upon him. If you're a child, you fall asleep in his arms. If you're an adult, it means you get in the wheelbarrow. And the wheelbarrow has Jesus Christ written on the side. Are you in the wheelbarrow, friends? It's the difference. Jesus is pushing the man from nominal faith, belief in his power, to life-saving trust in his heart 
It's life-changing. It's life-transforming. It's belief that becomes personal, life-giving trust. Number three, life-giving faith grows. Where does it mature? Life-giving faith grows through suffering. Have you ever done one of these uh, management uh, exercises or team-building exercises where you are in a circle of friends, you hope they're friends, and you stand in the middle and you, they say, put your ankles together, uh, use, engage your core if you've got one, and we want you to fall, keeping your back absolutely straight into the arms of your friends, and they should catch you. You can trust them. If they're not, they're no longer your friends. But um, you mustn't move your feet. You just fall into their arms. This is a trust exercise where you keep your body stiff. Jesus makes this interaction hard for the man, doesn't he? The man wants an immediate response. Jesus puts off the immediate response. The man wanted Jesus to go with him. Jesus says, I'm not going with you. I don't need to because I want you to transcend belief to personal life-giving trust. It would have been so reassuring if Jesus says, yes, I'll come with you. Imagine the Bible study on the way they could have had. But instead, he says, you need to take me at my word. In verse 50, the man did it. It must have been the longest walk the man ever had, but he took Jesus at his word. Friends, Jesus Christ is strong, and the Bible says he's kind. Jesus knows when you need smelling salts to wake you up, to come to your senses. Jesus Christ knows when you need reassurance. Jesus Christ knows when you need to take an incredibly long walk. Feeling absolutely sick in your stomach. Jesus knew what was best for the man. And so he did it. Friends, don't think you know what's best for your life. The Bible teaches from beginning to end, life-giving faith grows pure and strong in the same place that gold gets purified, which is the furnace of suffering. The only thing that will move us towards Jesus in the majority of cases is suffering, is hardship. And when God sends suffering into our lives, we begin to see for the first time how self-sufficient we are, how self-reliant we are, how opposed to trusting Jesus we are. But when God sends suffering into our lives, we begin to see for the first time what we are really trusting in. Number four, life-giving faith saves by its object. Life-giving faith saves because of its object, not because of its quality. Look at verse 50. This is incredibly comforting. When this man turned to go home, do you think he was kind of skipping home 25 miles? Yes, Jesus has given me a promise. It's going to be great. Do you think he was just uh, filled with high spirits? I don't think he was. I think he had lots of questions. Will Jesus' word come true? Are you sure you can't come with me? I know for sure that my son will live. I don't believe he's thinking that at all. I think he was on a journey, literally, and also on a journey from belief to trust in Jesus. He probably went back so scared, so nervous, so concerned. But this man's faith has led him to eternal life. You see, because it's not the strength of your faith that rescues and saves. It's the object of your faith. 
not the quality of your strength, of your faith that saves you. It's the object. Remember the chair? Remember Blondin? You can trust me. Look at what I've done. How much faith did this man need in order to save him and for him to receive eternal life? He just needed enough faith to take Jesus at his word and to go home. I don't have all the answers myself, but I know a man who does. Doubts and fears parted, and he says, I will take him at his word, verse 50. It's so comforting. It's not about you. It's all about the strength of Jesus Christ, not the quality of your faith. It's not the man's faith that saved his son. It's the kindness of Jesus that saved his son. He has power to save. How much faith did he have to have? Just enough to take Jesus at his word. Number five, real life-giving faith comes to love Jesus for who he is in himself and not for the benefits you get. Look at verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, is Jesus saying, you're after the things that you can get from me. You're not after me. Now, how do you get to the point where, verse 50, you can take Jesus at his word? Like this. He believed that Jesus loved him from the little interaction he had with Jesus, from the reports that he heard, he believed, and then he, he trusted Jesus because of this rebuttal that Jesus gave him twice. But we have so much more evidence, don't we? This side of the cross, how do we know that we can trust Jesus? Because of the cross. As that man walked away, Jesus may have said in his heart, I'm going to save your son. I'm going to save your son even though you don't deserve it. You're not going to lose your son because my father is going to lose his son. That's what happened on the cross. When Jesus took the weight of our sin upon himself so that we can never experience the agony that this man experienced to the same degree, Jesus saves. Jesus saved because Jesus died in our place so that we might sit in his place. Jesus carried all the burdens of our sin and the, the just appropriate wrath of God against our sin. He took it upon himself. And because of that, you can love Jesus for who he is, not just from what you can receive from him. Jesus is not a genie in the bottle. He's someone who loves us dearly. There's a man called Charles Simeon. In the 19th century, he was a preacher, he was a Christian minister in Cambridge. You can go and visit the church where he ministered still to this day. And at the end of his sermon on this passage, he made three quick applications. Here they are. Charles Simeon said, this is what this passage means. He said, first, when you have a real suffering or a real problem in your life, you need to do what this man did. You need to go to Jesus. You need to go to Jesus. Are you suffering right now? You need to go to Jesus. Number two. Let Jesus answer you on his own terms. Now, that is a hard word. This man wanted this, this man wanted that, and he thought he knew what was best, and he wanted it immediately. And Jesus says, no. Let Jesus answer you on his own terms. I have a different plan and purpose for your 
for you and for your son. Thirdly, if you've gone to Jesus with the suffering in your heart, if he's answered you on his own terms, tell your family and your friends. Look at sentence 53. Do you notice it wasn't just the man that was affected by this? It says, he and all his household believed. When you meet Jesus, the lover of your soul, who died to rescue you, who's the only source of thirst-quenching water and life-giving satisfaction. You want to tell your friends, don't you? Of all that he's done for you. Remember the lady who we met in John 4? Come, let me tell you about the man who's told me everything I ever did. Let's pray.